listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for September 2010. Today's episode is titled, Key to Success. According to Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, success is achieving a favorable or desired outcome. All organizations for profit and not-for-profit desire to achieve success. The former generally define success in terms of financial profit, and the latter define success in terms of social profit. Regardless of your specific definition, to achieve success requires C4 people. Organizational leaders who fail to learn how to develop sound biblical character in both themselves and others will struggle with organizational success. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled Keys to Success. Would you like to have a successful life? Anybody like that? Uh, You're not convincing me. You really want to have a successful life. At at the end of your life, do you want to be able to to say and to know, I succeeded? You really want that? Well, may I offer you some, some clues, some keys as to how this may happen? Would you like to know that? From the Word. Okay, but first... We have to do an exercise. So, have you got your bulletin? Okay, in your bulletin, there's a place in there for notes. You may have not, may not have noticed that. I know many of you use your bulletins contrary to what Hugh told you. Hugh said, do not use your bulletins to put paper in the bottom of your birdcage. Remember that? Told you not to do that? You're supposed to read them, and there are places for you to take notes. So, grab your bulletins, grab a pen, and for those of you that are high-tech, grab your iPad or your iPhone, and we're going to do a little exercise. Okay, now what I want you to do is rate rate how well the following statements are true. Rate how true they are of you. Okay, now I'm going to give you a scale of 0 to 10. Now this is not a binary thing. It's not true or false. You can There can be degrees of which this is true. So 0 is no and 10 is yes. Are you ready? All right, first, first statement is I live a disciplined spiritual life. Now, how true is that of you? Zero to ten. Number two, I'm submitted to authority in every area of my life. Now, this is asking in reality. Now, you're not writing down. You're supposed to be writing down your, your score. This is important. You know, do you want to learn these keys? You've got to be willing to participate. So write down your, your assessment here. Number three. I am wealthy and prosperous. Scale of 0 to 10. Number four. I am honored. Number five. Life is a wonderful experience for me. Number six. People recognize my discretion. That is, you live prudently, making very wise decisions. Number seven, my insights are well-known and respected. Number eight, the trials and tribulations of life do not negatively impact me. In other words, circumstances don't pull me down. Be honest on that one. Number nine, I know and apply biblical principles for finding my life purpose. 
And let me suggest, if you've never studied this intentionally, you probably don't know them. And number 10, I am on the road to a successful life. Okay, well, add up your score, and uh, you can use your iPhone calculator. That's okay. You know, or if you have a, a grade schooler next to you, they can probably add it up for you real quickly. Okay? And it's, it's 10 questions. The best you can make is 100. And if anybody made 100, uh, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. I need you to lay hands on me. Okay? All right? So you, I want you just to kind of set that aside for a moment. And I want to read some scripture to you. So if you'll turn in your scripture to Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going to read the the first 19 verses to you. The Proverbs of Solomon. Now, you know Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And you know what a proverb is? It's a maxim. It's a pithy statement that contains an, an essence of truth. And a maxim is something that's generally true. So here's the wisest man in the world giving us elements of truth, pithy sayings that will guide us into living successful lives. Now, you notice how he introduces himself. Son of David. You see, his first relationship is to his father. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, most of us wouldn't have done that. We would probably left out that son of David thing. It's just Solomon, king of Israel. But you see, Solomon understood something maybe we don't understand. The power of being a son. For attaining wisdom and discipline. For understanding words of insight. For acquiring a disciplined and prudent life. Doing what is right and just and fair. This word fair really is a word that means upright. For giving prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the young. So there's one of his targets is young people who are, shall we say, a little foolish. They're simple. And he has another target. Yeah, it is the wise. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. It's interesting that if you're wise, you never stop learning. You ever think about that? You know, we have a culture that basically says, you go to college or you go to get your, whatever education you get, and that's it, then you go to work and make a bunch of money. Your education's over. That's the way our culture is. That is a foolish perspective in our culture. If we're truly wise people, we'll recognize we never stop learning. The rest of our lives, we will be learners. He goes on, for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. He's given us proverbs to understand proverbs. Do you see that? It's a very interesting way he's expressed this. And then he gives us the seminal verse. In the book. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. Going on, verse 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. You notice he's gone now from being the son to the father. See that? They will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood. Let's waylay some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us. And we will share a common purse. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into sin, and they are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of the birds. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. Well, Father, we want to commit our time to you as we study the word this morning. We pray for wisdom and discernment to hear your voice clearly, to see what you want us to see, to hear what you want us to hear, and most of all, to be transformed into the image of your Son, through the obedience of the word. So, Father, grant us grace today. May it change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you five keys to success in life. Is that okay? Five keys? Can we handle five keys? you got five fingers, so we have five keys. I even thought about using the hand as kind of a, a picture of this, but I'm not going to go there. I don't have time to go there. Okay. The first key is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, you see that word antithetical up there in the notes? There are three basic styles of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is built around couplets, and there's three basic forms. There's a synonymous couplet in which you have Basically, two phrases, and you're saying the same thing with the two phrases. There's a synthetic couplet. That's where you have the two phrases, and you're saying, basically, you're adding to the first phrase by the second phrase. So you say X, and then you say Y, and Y adds on to X. And then you have the antithetical couplet, and that's where the two phrases of of the verse are different. They're opposite. So I've labeled this antithetical because the first part is talking about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then you've got, but, it's a good clue that you've got antithetical going on, fools despise wisdom and discipline. So this is very common Hebrew poetry, this couplet style. Now, the question here is, what does he mean beginning? What's that all about? Well, the word beginning suggests that 
It's first in time. It's first in priority. It's first in importance. It also suggests things like a seminal factor or a first principle. Many of you know I was trained uh, in, in physics, and when my professor would walk into the room for our class, he would always start the lecture the same way. It didn't matter what level of course, all the way up the program, he always started the same way. And that was given. He, when he said given, he was given us the first principle, the starting point. The beginning of the lecture right here was the given. Well, the given, when it comes to knowledge and wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. That is the given. Now, the challenge is, what does that mean? How, how do we define the fear of the Lord? Now, a lot of people have defined it as, well, a reverential fear. Or some people talk about an emotional fear. Which There are elements in which it's true, but the word is far more pregnant than that. In fact, you just start looking up scripture about the fear of the Lord, or the fear of God, or fearing you, referring to God. There's just enormous amounts of scripture dealing with this. And as I've considered this and I've read the commentators on it, what seems to be pretty clear is the fear of the Lord defies definition. But it can be described. Okay, And that's what I want to try to do is describe it to you. Um, One commentator, whom I deeply respect, says, you know, the fear of the Lord is a compound word. We should be using hyphens there. Fear hyphen of hyphen Lord. The uh, hyphen the Lord. Fear of the Lord should be a hyphenated compound phrase because it's really one concept. He said, you can't. You can't take fear of the Lord apart and, and understand it. Okay, any more than he used the illustration of butterfly. You can't understand a butterfly by studying butter and a fly. Okay? <laughs> says, you can't understand the fear of the Lord by taking it apart. You have to look at how it's used in Scripture. So it's we've got to say, okay, as we look at Scripture, what do we see? Well, here's a number of things. I'm going to show you several things, and I'm going to show you a diagram that hopefully will connect some of these things. First of all, the fear of the Lord drives your worldview. Did you know you have a worldview? Your worldview defines everything you do. And your worldview is evidenced by how you live. The choices you make, the things that you say, what you do, everything in your life reveals your worldview. So your worldview is driven by the fear of the Lord. And I would, I would post Proverbs 9.10 as an example. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the holy is understanding. How do you live life? You live life based on things that you understand and you know. That's how you live it. Everybody does. You have to, you act out of what you know. Well, where does that come from? It comes from whatever level of the fear of the Lord is operative in you. How much you understand about that concept. The fear of the Lord defines deportment. Look at Proverbs 16, 6. Through fear and through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. That's interesting. You avoid evil through the fear of the Lord. That means there's something impacting you that's causing you to make decisions. When the Israelites were going from the promised land, from uh, Egypt, to the promised land, there are several times where they ran into various uh, various other nations. And sometimes the nations had no fear of God. 
the text would say. And what did they do? They attacked the Israelites, which turned out to be very foolish. And then there were other nations that actually had the fear of God, which is interesting that the fear of God can come upon unsaved people. See? So those people, because they had fear of God, they didn't attack the Israelites. So this concept of fear of God can guide me into making wise choices. And also when I don't have it, I'm going to make foolish choices. So it's a measure of deportment, conduct. The fear of God is to be passionately sought. Look at this. Always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Well, wow, that's, that's kind of difficult because this is a concept that seems so abstract and almost so foreign. How do, how do I be zealous for this? How do we do that? Well, one of the things that helps us is this. When you finally decide that God is not fully understandable, that on some level he's incomprehensible, and that's okay. In fact, that gives me assurance that he really is God, because if you could fully understand him, he isn't God. So when you really get it, that there's a mystery to God, Rami Zacharias talks about the wonder of God, and all of us here in our various endeavors, I'm sure you've seen the wonder of God in some way in what you do, and it's, it's things that are not explainable, but they just are, and they're incredible. You know, how does the nucleus of an, of an atom hold together with all those protons that are, that are possibly charged and repelling each other? How does it stay together? Well, the scientists don't have any clue, really, so they invented a term called the strong force. That's how it happens. Well, that's the wonder of God. We don't understand in the final analysis, we see through a glass darkly. We can do certain things. Yeah, we can send a man to the moon. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. But we don't have a clue how the atom holds together. You see that? The wonder of God. So when you, when you really get infected with that, then you have a zeal. A zeal for understanding this fear of the Lord. And finally, the fear of the Lord is taught by parents to children. Wow, well, that's interesting. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. If you think you can get to the fear of the Lord and understand it by yourself, you're thinking like an orphan. We've been talking about orphans a lot. And you know what, what a parent does with a child? They accelerate the child into the destiny of God. That's what a parent should be doing. And so when we get this, we begin to see the power of the fear of God and how it operates. Now, I've got a little, uh, I'm going to show you a model here, and I apologize because we were having technical issues this morning, and my, my PowerPoint actually would be easier for you to see this, but the animation doesn't translate to what we're going to be able to do here. So you're going to see the whole thing. So you're going to have to be disciplined a little bit and let me explain it to you so you'll understand what this is. Okay. Now, start with the left. This is the fear of the Lord. This is the, the thing we're talking about. What is this thing that's the beginning, the seminal point of life? Well, it leads to knowledge. Now, knowledge, let me explain knowledge. Knowledge is an understanding of how God's universe works. That's what's not. Would you agree that's a good definition of knowledge? That came from Dr. Walkie, who is an Old Testament scholar, one of my... Uh, 
one of the men that influenced me early in my life, and I deeply respect him. So this is his definition I've adopted. Knowledge is an understanding of how God's universe works. From knowledge, we get wisdom. Now, what's wisdom? Well, his definition of wisdom is the skill now to apply that knowledge correctly, to apply it well, to live life well. Okay, so this is all coming from the fear of the Lord leads to knowledge, which leads to wisdom. And how do you know somebody has this wisdom rooted in the fear of the Lord? Well, here's some characteristics over here. Success. Discipline. Humility. They're submitted to authority. They enjoy wealth. Now, let me find wealth where some of you kind of go into a panic fit here. Okay? You know, most of you, when you think about wealth, you immediately think about money. Okay? Some of you say, I don't think about money. I think about gold. Okay, I understand. No. Wealth. You know what the greatest wealth is? What is better than money? What's better than gold? What's better than anything? Is wisdom. Wisdom is the greatest wealth. Proverbs 8. Take a look at that and just look at what that text says. I mean, there's no comparison. The text shows that wisdom is so far above money or any kind of wealth, there's no comparison. So a person who is wealthy is a person who has the resources to do what they're called to do. That's what wealth is. When you have the resources to do what you're called to do. Now, many of us think we don't have enough. And we can spend a whole a lot of time talking about that deal. But let me say this. If we have an intentional, purposeful God, you have what you need to do what you're called to do. You have it right now. Now, there are all kinds of things that play into this, like, you know, your, your sin can cause impediments in your cash flow. Okay? God could be trying to get your attention through your cash flow. You need to pay attention to that. But you need to know this. Money's not a problem with God. And if you belong to him, money should not be a problem for you. In fact, do you know what money is? What it really is? You know, the world out there tells us it's the end-all, be-all. It's why we work. It's why we get up in the morning. We're all about building this big nest egg. It defines our success, significance, everything. That's what the world says. You know what money is? Money is one thing. It is the tool to do the will of God. That's all money is. You know what time is? It's the tool to do the will of God. You know what your talents are? They're tools to do the will of God. So when you begin to think biblically, then you begin to display some of these traits here of a person who's rooted in the fear of the Lord, who's learned the knowledge of how God's universe has worked, who has gained wisdom how to apply that knowledge, and now some of these traits become yours. By the way, these traits were basically the what I did the little exercise off of. The point of that exercise, hopefully, was to show you, you know, how much you are walking in the fear of the Lord. To what degree? Now, those of you that scored high, uh, may I suggest that you allow your spouse or someone that knows you well, to assess you. That you might find a different score. Okay? And you, are, you, are you courageous enough to face that? You want, is that okay? Can we face truth? You can't handle the truth, can you, huh? Huh? Can you handle the truth? It's a challenge for us all. 
Well, I've got to go on here, but I wish we could just dwell on this. But this is, this is meant to show you that this concept of the fear of the Lord, even though it kind of defies defining, it is pregnant with meaning. It can be described as lots of implications. It is the, really the foundation of how we live, and it's the wonderment of this that enables us to grow up in Christ. Okay, let's talk about key number two. I've got to speed this up here. Okay, so the first key to success is the fear of the Lord. Second key is a godly lineage. To learn the fear of the Lord requires being grounded in a biblical worldview, and that is coming comes through parents. Now, some of you immediately, I know, react to this because you had your earthly parents were maybe not very good. Some of you had great earthly parents. Some of you didn't. Some of you may be orphans. There's all kinds of situations here. But don't worry. Everybody needs, everybody needs earthly parents, or you don't get here. And God has a purpose in those earthly parents. And regardless of how good they may be or how bad they may be, you also need spiritual parents. Okay? And God has a provision for that. I just want to give you an example here of how God does this. You remember Timothy? Remember him? One of Paul's uh, buddies, he was discipled by his grandmother and mother, and he was adopted by the Apostle Paul. Look at this. I'm not going to spend any time on this, just mention this. Here's the first mention of Timothy. He, was, he grew up in Lystra. He talked about his mother was a Jewish and a believer. His father was a Greek. That suggests he was probably a pagan. And then over here in Second uh, Timothy, uh, Paul is talking about his grandmother Lois, and his mother Eunice, who discipled him. And then finally Paul calls Timothy, my true son in the faith. You see, God provides spiritual parents to make up for the deficiency of our natural natural parents. So it doesn't matter what your situation is, how good your parents were, how bad they were, God has, has additional resources available, spiritual parents. The spiritual parents are there to train you in the fear of the Lord. That's their job. A true, a true spiritual parents will be focused on that. All right, so we've got our first two keys, the fear of the Lord, and we've got our, our godly lineage. Now, we've got to be willing to submit to this. And I guess that's, that's a little more challenging thing here. Now, notice this text here. I don't know how we can see this, but... This is verse verse 8. It says, listen, and the Hebrew word is shema. It means to hear intelligently with implication of attention and obedience. Now, I learned when, I, when our girls were teenagers, and I was trying to instruct them in the fear of the Lord, and they would, hear, they would say things, yeah, I hear you, Dad. Okay, I learned pretty quickly that what that meant is I'm not listening. Okay, Now, we all have a little bit of that in us. And so we've got a Shema, you know, like, listen, because God has sent parents and spiritual parents into your life to train you in the fear of the Lord. And there's two aspects to this. One is the, it's interesting, he uses the, the father and mother metaphor here to, to explain these two aspects. The first aspect is the father. This word here is mukar, which means chastisement. Also, reproof, warning, instruction, restraint. This sounds kind of physical, doesn't it? Like we're going to get in your face. Okay, well, that's what fathers do. 
fathers get in your face with reality sometimes may have to get a little physical to get your attention. But you need it. You're not going to learn the fear of the Lord without it. And then it says, do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now look what it says here. It uses the word Torah. Torah. Now y'all recognize that immediately. It's a precept or statute, especially the Decalogue or Pentateuch. So this is the teaching. You need teaching, truth, like what I'm doing right here, right now. I'm, I'm acting as a spiritual mother to give you teaching. Okay? What you need in addition to this is a spiritual father to hold you accountable to what you heard. Now, see, that's the challenge. You know, most of us, we're okay coming to hear the stuff, but we want to walk out the door and we want to live the way we want to live. Don't tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. In fact, it's a virtue in our culture to be a self-made person. That's part of the deception. The only way to real success is to be guided by godly parents into a fear of the Lord and walking in the fear of the Lord. Okay, so that's the... That's the essence of submission here. Note also that before you can be a father, you have to be a son. Okay, I'm going I'm to well, show you this one, this last one here, First Thessalonians 2 text real quickly because I've got to speed up here. <clears throat> I want you to notice that being a mother and a father is not gender specific. Okay, I just mentioned to you I'm serving you as a mother. Well, look what, what Paul says here. But we, this is the last verse here, Second Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians two. But we, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children. Here are males that were taking on the role of a mother, and then a few verses later he says, "For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God." who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, that word urging is the Greek word mastigo. Mastigo means to scourge. It means to whip. It means to beat into submission. Now, I don't mean, I'm not meaning this in in a brutal way. I'm meaning this in a way of loving discipline. You know, if you're living your life pretty much the way you want to live it, you're probably not learning much about the fear of the Lord. The way you're going to learn to walk in the fear of the Lord is to be under a godly father who is correcting you, who is guiding you, who is challenging you, who's not letting you get away with your sin patterns. He's continually calling you on it. Now, most of us don't want that. But if you want to grow up in Christ... You've got to be zealous for it. You ever thought about that? You need to be zealous for that kind of relationship. Okay. So now we have the fear of the Lord is the first key. Godly lineage who's imparting the fear of the Lord to you. And you're submitted to that lineage and learning the fear of the Lord from them. Those are the first three elements of success. The fourth one is live strategically. Now, living strategically is about learning how to really discern what God is saying to you in two key ways. Okay, there are two elements. Notice it says they, and he's referring to the teaching and accountability from parents to a worldview based on the fear of the Lord, 
will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Now, I think that is a, that is a, um, uh, a synthetic couplet. I think they add to each other. I do not think it's a synonymous couplet. Because I think there are two aspects to living strategically. The first aspect is the garland. The garland is the wreath that is put on the head of a person. You see it symbol, I see a picture over here of this little girl. And back in that culture, it symbolized an obedient child. A child that was in alignment with the teaching of the parents. And so it spoke of the present reality of that child. I'm lining up with what's going on in our home. So that's the first aspect of living strategically is getting under godly authority and submitting to that godly authority. Now, you understand how what that means to submit to godly authority? Okay. It does not mean I say I submit. There are a lot of people who say I say I submit. It means from the inside out. I submit. There's a lot of words going out there. We need right here. Now, here's the test. You can give yourself a little test. You don't mind that, do you? A little test. If somebody you're submitted to and tells you to do something that you don't understand or you don't agree with, will you do it? See, in our culture today, which is largely characterized as postmodern, People won't do that. They won't do things they don't understand or don't agree with. But from a biblical worldview, if you're truly submitted to a father and he tells you to do something, you don't have to understand it. You don't have to agree. You know you're supposed to do it. That's the real test of submission. Okay, so garland is the garland on your head symbolizes your current submission. And then there's a chain around your neck. Now, this is referring to a race. You know, in Hebrews 12, our, our life is compared to a race. You know, we're told to run the race with perseverance. And the end of the race is a reward for how we finish the race. So you see, this aspect of living strategically is looking to the future. It's looking to the end of our life. So let's say that today is the day that you go be with the Lord. What do you want to say to the Lord today? He's, he's knocking on your door and saying, It's your day, baby. What do you want to say? Well, there's only one thing. One thing to say. Lord, I made a bunch of money. No, that doesn't work, does it? Uh, Lord, I went to a bunch of football games. Uh, I went to a bunch of vacations. I traveled the world. I saw all your marvelous sights. Um, Let's see. What else can I say? Uh, I went to church a lot. Went to a lot of conferences. I was, I was an expressive worshiper. No, there's only one thing to say. That's what Jesus said. Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. John 17, 4. That's what I want to say. Do you want to say that? And what do you want to hear back? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the only thing. That wins the prize. Now, please understand, that does not mean you work your way to heaven. No, your position with God is secured by the work of Jesus Christ. What this is, is by your life validates the reality of your profession. If you profess to know Christ, there will be an evidence of that in how you live. 
So that's the challenge to step up and live up to the calling with which we've been called. That's why parents are to, or fathers are to urge their children to live a life worthy of the Lord. So that's the challenge. Okay. So now, let me just say this. The way I look at this is there are two aspects to obeying God. There's the general will of God and the specific will of God. The general will of God is the will that we're all under this same will, which is to live according to a biblical worldview. That's called, it's general because it applies the same for everybody. The specific will of God now is individual to you. You have a call on your life that's specific to you. And God puts you here and put all the situations in your life, all the gifts, the talents, the opportunities, everything that's orchestrated in your life, God has put there so you can do specifically what he created you to do. So I look at it this way. I call it doing God's will, the specific will, according to God's ways, which is a biblical worldview. All right, the fifth element here is don't be yoked with sinners. We'll do this real quickly here. Okay, this is the rest of the text here in verses 10 through 19. My son, if sinners entice you, don't give in. The enticement to pursue ill-gotten gain is enormous for all of us. And so what we've got to do is recognize the enticement. The first element of the enticement is there is an agreement. There is an offer made to enter into an agreement, a partnership, a yoked relationship, which is not based on the fear of the Lord, and it's not submitted to authority. So that's the first element of being tempted into the way of sinners. The second element is the object. The object of sinners is always to worship some other god. And the most prominent other god is money. It's the God of our culture. And probably if we were all brutally honest, a lot of us worship money. Really? Yeah, I think, I think we, we would, if we were brutally honest, if, the, if we had the Lord assessing us here today, there may be some reality checks. Because most of us live like the culture. And getting rich quick, you know, that kind of attracts us, you know. We could talk about this a little bit. Like, well, I played the lottery or, you know, some of you might be into multi-level marketing. And I know that there are some okay multi-level marketing, but everyone I've seen always starts out with, want to make a bunch of money? It's all about the money. See, you got to really look hard at what's going on. When you realize what money is, when you realize it's not the game, it's just a tool, well, suddenly... Money becomes a secondary thing. I'm all about discerning what God wants me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. And the validation that I'm supposed to do that is there's provision. And how do we know this? Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and do it according to his righteousness, which are his rules. What does he say? I'll take care of your needs. Now, some of us may have to redefine what we think our needs are, you know, God, God, you know, God has a will for our deeds. He has a will for our standard of living. You know, we don't have the right to define our standard of living. That's not a right we have. You know, our, our, our responsibility is to get under the will of God there. So the objective of 
the way of sinners is almost always trying to lure us into something like money. And then you have the means and methods. It's always sin, deception, abuse of others, death. It's always using people. It's never really blessing and serving. It's whatever I can do to make a bunch of money as fast as I can, and I don't care who I hurt. And we use things like, we say things like, well, it's, you know, it's just business, it's not personal. You heard that? Just business is not personal. I mean, that's just another statement for I worship money. That's all that is. Well, the, the father here is telling the son, don't get sucked into this trap. This will not lead to a good, good end. The strategy is not efficacious. efficacious. You know what efficacious means? Those of you that are trained as physicians probably know. It means it doesn't accomplish its purpose. And it uses the picture here of, of, of uh, spreading a net in front of the birds. It's like going fishing with a bare hook. Has anybody done that? Go fishing with a bare hook? How much did you catch? I mean, it's, it's a foolish strategy. That isn't going to work. You see, that's what happens. Fools don't recognize the foolishness of their strategy. What if we said, okay, hey, I know how we can get rich. We're going to go rob banks. Hey, we might even get a, I've been doing it for a week. I've done it three or four times. Haven't been caught yet. Well, we all know where the end of that is. You will get caught at some point. Because that does not work in God's universe. That is pursuing the wrong God, the wrong end. It's not efficacious. The strategy will not work. The ultimate end of the, of the sinner's life is deception and death. It will not work. Now, here's a little chart that I wanted to show you here that this describes basically the sinner, the fool on the left, the wise on the right. And by the way, if you want these notes, all you got to do is send me an email. I'll send you a PDF copy of these notes. But you can see the starting point here of the fool or the sinner is self. No fear of God, whereas the wise person is about the fear of God. The authority for the, the fools is themselves. It's all about them. But for a wise person, they look to godly mothers and fathers. The way of life for the sinner, it's all about momentary pleasure. Instant gratification. And for the wise... It's patiently submitting to a biblical worldview. They're teachable and accountable. Then you have the motive in life, doing your own will versus doing God's will according to God's ways. Then you have the end of life, which is all about deception and death, versus the wise are about finding and fulfilling their life purpose, making disciples and living eternal life. Now let me just quickly define you know, ill-gotten gain to you. I didn't do that. I apologize. It's very important. A lot of us, when we read this text, we don't connect with it because we say, well, I'm not a bank robber. I don't do stuff like that. Now, let me t- tell you what ill-gotten gain is, in my opinion. I think ill-gotten gain is any kind of profit that's gained outside the will of God. If you're not doing what God created you to do, you are producing ill-gotten gain. If you're not doing what God created you to do according to God's ways... It's ill-gotten gain. So this this text is very relevant to all of us when we realize ill-gotten gain is anything contrary to the will and the ways of God. So let me summarize for you the five keys to success. Number one, you have to learn the fear of the Lord. It's something you learn. You have to master it. It may take years. You may take your lifetime. And it takes spiritual parents to do it. So you've got to identify your godly lineage. Who are your spiritual parents that supplement your natural parents? 
And then you've got to get submitted to these spiritual parents. Get under their authority. Become teachable and accountable. Teachable and accountable. You've got to let that go in because most of us, we're okay with being teachable. This accountable thing, we don't want that. Do you want the fear of God? Do you want to learn the fear of God? You want to learn what it is to walk successfully in God's universe? You have got to learn to walk in submission. Then you have to learn to live strategically, which is finding what God created you to do. Everybody that has ever been created has a purpose in God's universe. Everyone. The question is, what is it God wants you to do? And the way God works, he said, it's my glory to conceal a matter. It's your glory to search it out. So when you came out of the womb, there wasn't a name plate on you that said, this is Nancy and this is why I made you. Nobody has that. We've all got to go on to launch into a discovery process to understand why God made me and what I'm supposed to do as part of his kingdom work. And the only success in life is going to be for me to find that work and do it. So you've got to find your life purpose. You have to fulfill your life purpose. And finally, along the way, you have to really fight the way of the sinner. The way of the sinner is continually offered to us day in and day out in relationships and contexts of life. We're continually invited into the way of sinners. We have to be strong enough in the fear of the Lord, strong enough in our relationships with our parents, strong enough in our obedience to the word of God and to a discernment of the will of God for our lives that we don't get sucked into the way of sinners, which is always narcissistic about me. It's always short-term thinking, and it's almost always mammon-driven, which is about money. So here's, here's my prayer for us. It came, came from Psalm 57 two. David said this, I cry out to God most high, who fulfills his purpose in me. You want that? Well, I want to encourage you. I want to pray for you, but first I just want to encourage you. The Strategic Life Alignment Seminar is a tool to help you find the purpose of God for your life. If you haven't been through that, or even if you have, I encourage you to go through it again. You need the training, and then you need to do the follow-up, which is the accountability to walk out what you learn. Well, Father, we thank you so much for the word. The word is rich. It's alive. We thank you for the opportunity to learn more of what it is to understand the fear of you. To walk in that reality. May it change us and transform us. May it make us the people that you've called us to be and release us to the destiny that you've put in each of our lives. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you to be your servants. In Jesus' name, amen.